Hi, welcome to Eurocron. I'm your host, Scott Pitney. Eurocron is a podcast where we chronicle extraordinary people and their extraordinary stories. Our goal is simple, entertain, inspire, educate, and at times humor our audience while our guests build their audio legacy. So let's get right to our next extraordinary story. I've really been looking forward to our next guest, Stephen Richardson. Stephen flew 17 years, which included air medical, news gathering, offshore, power line and pipeline search and rescue missions. And a lot of times when I have a guest on the show, I get a little bit more uh, about them to introduce them. But when I heard the synopsis of Stephen's story that he's going to tell us tonight, I, I just, that's all I needed to know. So I'm going to be hearing it for the first time uh, as our listeners are. So I'm very excited to have you, Stephen. Welcome to your cron. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. So where is a good place to start your extraordinary story? February the 19th of 2006. Uh, we had a uh, flight from Houston Hobby going out to the uh, Sabine Lightering area. We were taking out some groceries. We had we were going to pick some guys up and bring them back in. Uh, the weather had been was bad. There was a front pushing through that night. We checked the weather, and we were legal and safe to fly. But as weather in the Gulf Coast goes, we got out there, and it started stepping down on us. And we had um, some winds were really picking up to about 25 or 30 miles an hour. So we had to send it down to the altitude that we were going to have to make a continue or go back decision. And the, I was sitting in the left seat, the first officer. Um, the, the captain was, uh, I believe, a 12-year or 12,000-hour Coast Guard pilot himself. He was flying. I'd been out there many, many times with him, and he's very safe and very conscious. And so we got to the ship. Um, it was misty, rainy, so it was right on the edge of being marginal VFR. We had the ship in sight. Um, I was, my job was to gather up the, uh, bill of lading and some documents. I think we had some money that was going out there to them because you can't, they can't do the lightering work without. So I was busy gathering this thing up. And next thing I know we hit the water and water just came through the windshield. And I remember thinking to myself, we're crashing, we're crashing. And seconds later, it seemed like the whole cabin filled up with water. Everything went black and the helicopter just literally just flipped over. I remember holding my breath. First thought came to mind is I got to get out of the seat. So undid the seat belt, opened the door, didn't have to jettison it. Fortunately enough, it opened up, was able to swim out through the door. And I was under about three feet of water at this time, able to surface, pull the PFD and think what happened. And, you know, when that, when something like that happens to you, it catches you so off guard. Nobody could prepare for that. that you just wonder what the heck is going on. And there was this, and the helicopter, by the way, was a Bell 222 uh, B model. Anybody remembers the show Airwolf? It greatly favors that. Mm. And so we, I'm sitting there, this thing is upside down with the wheels sticking out. I'm thinking, and I'm screaming for the captain's name. I was calling him by name and I didn't see him at this point. I thought, oh my God, little I could do at this point. I was just hanging on to one of the the gears to survive in the uh, the ocean. And then moments later, then I heard him calling my name and he was on the other side of the aircraft. Um, he wasn't so fortunate as he had to 
egress through the wind, the windshield area, and it got scratched up a little bit more than I did, but eventually we made our way around to each other. This, by the way, happened at 2.05 in the morning. And I suggest let's lock arms. First thing I said to keep from getting separated, so we interlocked arms, and there we were. And what conditions we found out there, we had 10-foot seas, the wind was blowing 25 to 30 miles an hour. We had uh, the water temperature was 64, which, as I understand, is right at the hypothermic level. And then we had uh, 42 degrees air temperature. It was, it was a night you would want to be home by the fire, not out flying, obviously, but we were. And so we thought we were okay. We're just going to hold on to the helicopter until we figure out what's going to happen next. Well, that didn't last long because the water pulled it right down sunk to the bottom of the ocean. So there we were just with our own devices. We had the flotation devices keeping our head above water, but we were just out there floating around and saying, what happened? What happened? You know, and we, it just was unimaginable. Jet fuel was spilled all over the water. Of course, down, down to the bottom went all the paperwork, the groceries. And I'm just thankful that nobody was on board. We, we went out empty, but we were going to grab some guys and come back. And for the next three hours and 20 minutes, we got to enjoy a little splashdown in no man's land. I, I, I make a little light of it now, but believe me, it was the most terrifying thing you could ever go through. Um, and we just, Bob was apologizing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said, we just got to figure out how we're going to get out of here. So we had an EPIRB and we had a flare, but the flare went up and it bent over because the wind wouldn't let it get very high. What is an EPIRB? It's an EPIRB is a signal, a device that sends out a signal for a Coast Guard locator so they can actually identify your location. Okay. Um, fortunate thing for us was there was a, you had the mothership out there, then you had a lightering boat that was, that has to, they were going to transfer oil from one vessel to the other actually saw us go down. So immediately they broke off and started a search grid and, um, you could see them out there. You could see, cause we were, we were less than a mile from the boat when we hit. That's how bad it was, but at least we could see where the boat was. So this thing came out and started doing a search grid, but in 10-foot seas, uh, you're not going to get very fast very far. And, of course, they had a procedure, and the, the mothership, I call it, uh, went ahead and put out a call to the Coast Guard. Uh, we didn't know this at the time, but the Coast Guard helicopter was out on another mission that night. And so here we were just kind of floating around out there just trying to survive, um, we were, you know, you couldn't take a fresh breath without getting hit in the face with another wave. Um, at some point during the night, I remember looking down uh, and I noticed there was a light still around my neck. Well, I had a, a high beam LED light that I was wearing that somehow survived because it was just on a real thin lanyard. I thought it would have washed away like everything else did, but no, it was there. So I picked the light up and at one point I noticed the ship was coming my way. So I held it up in the air and kind of waved it to see if I could grab their attention. They didn't see it the first time. I thought, rats, here we are. You know, what are we going to do? Uh, so Bob and I were just kept talking. He had all of his devices on. He was just, uh, trying to wait it out and see, we knew that they went down. So at this point we were just waiting to hear the helicopter come over and winch us out of the water. And, uh, that didn't happen. And time went by and time went by. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, I cannot believe this. I'd rather. And I, I remember making a comment to Bob. I said, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. It wasn't nothing humorous about it, but just trying to break up the routine of what was going on. Sure. And, uh, he just was sorrowful. He was kept apologizing for allowing this to happen. And I wasn't upset with him. I said, this could happen to anybody. You know, I, I don't know why he did it. I don't know what he was looking at or if he got target asphyxiation perhaps and didn't see the, 
did not see the uh, that we were descending into the ocean. It was it was mucky out there, quite honestly. Um, but it was his decision. He was a senior pilot. I was a junior pilot at that point. So, at any rate, um, what, we just what was his decision when you say it was his decision to continue the flight? Um, and I now have learned a lot of things since then. It should be both of our decisions because both of us were captains on this particular aircraft. The only reason he was flying the right seat is because I had this right around the time of Katrina and I had made a bunch of trips over to New Orleans flying. So to be fair to him, I thought, well, I'll let you fly tonight because I had been flying the last week. And so I thought, do you want to fly? And he said, sure. So we went ahead and did it that way. So we could both operate as a captain or a first officer position, which we were doing. And, um, yeah, we just hung out and we, I just kept thinking, how are we going to get out of here? How are we going to get out of here? You know, and I was wrapped up pretty good. I had on jeans. I think I had thermals underneath flight boots and I had a t-shirt, a company shirt and a flight jacket and gloves. So it wasn't like we were completely exposed. Um, did you have a life jacket on? We did. We had, uh, it just got a, attached us around and snapped in the front with some plastic connectors that would hold it in place. And then you have a little rip cord you could pull, which would inflate it. So we had that, but it was just barely keeping our heads above water mm. at this point. And um, we just, there we were, just like tea bags bobbing around in the ocean out there waiting for something to happen. We didn't even know what. We could still see the other ship looking for us. And, you know, a couple of hours had passed, and we were just sitting there thinking to myself, God have mercy. I, I just, I was scared. I, the fear that I was feeling right then, I can't describe to you. It was just, you, you almost feel hopeless. And I remember just screaming out, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. You know, I just didn't know what was going to happen. I, most of the time, people don't survive that kind of thing. And if you read the NTSB reports, they don't. Day or night, usually, that's a pretty severe splashdown. But here we were. And this is something that came to my mind later, but where the shocks are out there that far offshore, they're, they're night feeders, so nocturnal. So they, we didn't have any issues to deal with. Maybe because we're covered with jet fuel, maybe that was something that would repel them. I don't know. I, I was just remembering after we got to safety, remembering thinking, wow, there's got to be some of those guys out there. So the thought of sharks never crossed your mind while you were out there, not until you got back. Not that I recall. I, I may have thought I thought about it, but they had, we had so much other stuff that was going on that was just, um, you know, I, I'm sure we did. I take that back. I'm sure we thought about there could be sharks, but it really didn't dawn on me, I think, till after we got to safety that the potential of who knows what was below us. I think where we were, the uh, bottom of the ocean was a thousand feet down. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of sea life down there. I'm sure sharks were one of it, but we were just completely saturated with jet fuel. Yeah. And there we just hung out. We just hung out and bobbed and we didn't talk. Sometimes we'd talk. Sometimes we'd just try to survive. And eventually this work boat that we saw that was coming out, um, I saw it coming our way again. So I held up the light over my head and I waved it at him again and just said, Lord, come on, they need to see this light. Fortunately for us, they did. And so they kept getting closer. And the reason we knew they did, because they kept getting closer and closer and closer and closer. Well, this was about three hours and 25 minutes later. And I had cramps in every muscle on my body. I was fatigued. And by this time, I was getting hypothermic. Hypothermia was catching up to me. It had saturated. I was getting that real sleepy feeling where you just want to put your head down on the water and go to sleep. Did, did you know what the, um, what the symptoms of hypothermia are? So you, yeah. you knew ex exactly what it was. I knew I had less than 30 minutes to live at this point. Wow. And um, I remember I just didn't have any strength. I just bought, and the 
co- the senior pilot kept saying, wake up, Stephen, wake up, get your head up. And I said, I just want to go to sleep. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I just want to take a little nap. You know, well, it, fortunately for us, the boat got closer and they created s- such wake from the boat moving in that it, that almost wiped us out right then because both of us were just completely exhausted. Um, but they managed to throw out a donut to us and he told me to go first. So I was the first one managed to get over this donut and got pulled over to the boat. And it took four men to deadlift me out of the water and put me on the ship. And of course, by then you're just shaking and you can't, you don't have any legs to stand on or anything. So they got Bob, Bob up the same way and put us, uh, onto the boat and gave us dry clothes and, uh, towels and stuff like that. And I think I had swallowed about a gallon and a half of seawater at this point. So I needed to regurgitate a lot of that. And we did, and they offered us water. We drank a lot of water for hydration. Then we just sat there on the boat. And what they did actually is get the boat over next to the the vessel. And they had a crane with a basket on it. And from the mothership, they dropped that down and they were able to load us on that and then lift us over to the larger vessel. Well, at this point, the helicopter was waiting for us. So the Coast Guard medical crew met us as soon as we landed and they got us into the aircraft and wrapped us up with blankets, started the IVs and did all the things they were going to do, uh, cranked up and then took off. And I remember just being ever so grateful and thankful that we were alive because the odds that were against us, you just don't survive. Um, and so I guess we had probably 35, 40 minute flight back. They were taking us back to UTMB and we got probably 10 miles away from UTMB and the Coast Guard told us, they said, now guys, we would fly you straight to the hospital, but we're running on fumes. So we're going to have to stop at the airport. <laughs> no. And I, <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I just remember thinking to myself, there's no way this happens twice in one night. It, one would think. One would. I, and I thought, again, well, at least if it does, we have the Coast Guard right here. To help us out. You know, they got more experience. And at this point in time, I had never had sea survival training. Nothing. Wow. The company that I flew for, it, all, our sea survival training was going over to Millionaire Swimming Pool, inflating a life raft and crawling in. Normally, you go somewhere and you have dunker training. You have, and you go down to the dunker training and you'll do, they'll flip you upside down and you'll have to free yourself. And then they do it. Uh, where you have to jettison the doors to get out. Then they'll do it where you have to swim from the left side, out the right side, put you through a series of combinations to make sure that you're comfortable. Um, Never had any of that. Uh, They teach you some sea survival tricks if you're out there with other passengers, how you can can use clothing and stuff for flotation and whatnot. But after the fact, years later, when I went back to offshore, I actually went through that training program, and it was really beneficial. So for me, the only thing I'd had up to that point was watching Discovery Wings. Um, They did a show on Alaska. They had some pilots out there flying off of St. John's, Newfoundland. And so I remember watching what I was seeing up there, and I'm glad I did. So it gave us a couple of ideas, at least to to practice while we're we're out there. What ideas did you take away from that show? That Locking arms, um, Mm -hmm. interlocking the arms, um, not burning up all of your energy, not not thrashing around profusely, which is your natural tendency to do, but just kind of relax and lightly tread water just enough to keep your head above the water. Um, So you're inhaling this this jet fuel and fighting 10-foot swells and salt water and all this. It's hard to imagine... Were you doing anything, uh, Stephen, to to try to breathe through all that? Because it, every breath, right, you're just 
taking all this in. So I know you didn't have much of a choice, but I'm just trying to get my head around how you're dealing with that. What I what we decided to do is put our backs to the swells. Okay. At least to try to have it crash over our back. That would give us a little chance. You'd almost have to time your breaths out. Because at first we were sitting there and these waves were just hitting us in the face. And it was like, it was, that's going to wash us out right now. We just, you couldn't breathe because they were coming so fast. Mm. And I said, Bob, let's turn around and put our backs to the swells. Mm-hmm. You know, at least that way it can splash over our backs and maybe we can have a little pocket of air which we can breathe. But it was tough. That was the biggest challenge out there is just to keep fresh air in your lungs. Yeah. With the wind and, you know, it's just everything that we had on board that we tried to use was not effective. The, the flares normally would have worked well, but, you know, the wind's going to keep them right over the top of the water. So they're not, they're harder to see. Yeah. Not to mention there was, a, it was cloudy, misty, rainy, and it was by this point, 520 in the morning. Yeah. And so you're, you're floating out there and you're saving energy. So the thought of, of, Actually, trying to, I think you said your landing target was about a mile away. Correct. The, the, the thought of, of trying to get there by swimming or treading or any, did that ever cross your mind? It most definitely crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. And I even mentioned to Bob and what was happening, and then the current was taking us further and further away. So we, we splashed down about a mile away, but then we could see it. And then we start moving around from the from the bow of the ship back to the stern. You know, there was, so it was taking us around. I thought, I mentioned it to him. I said, How do we. Uh, can we get over to the ship? And he said, there's no possibility of it. Mm-hmm. We, we wouldn't make it. Mm-hmm. So he said, the best thing we're going to do is just stay here. Well, this guy's 12 years in the Coast Guard himself, retired. So I said, I'm going to listen to him. Sure. So we we did that. And I remember uh, getting back to, they finally got to the island. And they landed us at the airport. And of course, the bus was there. And they loaded us up there and took us over to UTMB and we walked in on shaky, shaky and just, we had to be helped in, but we were walked in on our own initiatives. And then therefore they went, they uh, started treatment on us and everything. I think my blood pressure was something like 170 over 210 or the other way around, whatever it was. It was enormous. Off the charts. It's off the charts. Yeah. And fortunately for me, the only injury I had, I had a small bruise on the inside of my left arm. That was it. Um. It, <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I just, and I remember once I got to the hospital, I started getting happy. Yeah. Because I remember that the Lord had saved us from that. There's no other possibility it could be. And I was just excited. So they got us treated and they did numerous MRIs, CAT scans, blood work, anything and everything they could do to work it up. Finally got us in a, in a room in bed, nice and safe and secure with a meal. Yeah, I, was, I was getting pretty happy at that point. So, yeah. And, and you mentioned that you threw up after you got on the rescue boat, but not before? Not before. Hmm. I wonder why that is. Because you're you were obviously full of salt water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I was coughing a lot. Mm-hmm. I was coughing and blowing stuff out of the nose and things like that. But I yeah. really didn't just regurgitate the uh, the salt water. But as soon as we got on board, I took a couple of swallows of fresh water and it just came out. Oh, okay. So it may have been the mixture or it it, it could have been on that. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize how much salt water we had swallowed uh, taken in either. Mm. Bob was the same way. And uh, these guys on these ships are real sweethearts. They, they took care of us. They were really nice. And um, had they not have gotten there, because the helicopter, I think some point during the rescue had made it over to the ship. And the reason they didn't come out and look for us is because they already said we'd been found and we were being taken aboard. So yeah. they just went ahead and landed. Yeah. We'll be right back.
We are very excited to have a new sponsor at Yorkron. Luxury men's clothing lines Thaddeus and Tad are now combined on one website. They belong to the same family. They share DNA. Might as well have their clothes all in the same place too. Both brands are typically sold at Nordstrom's, Bergdorf's, and unique upscale boutiques. But you can find them online at ThaddeusandTad.com. Thaddeus, the uncle, is a collection of sportswear for the man who always arrives well-dressed, but sometimes breaks the rules. Quality fabrics are important, but so are comfort, fit, and details. Some of the pieces are washed and weathered, others more crisp. Thaddeus is designed for the man who is current and comfortable in his own skin. Tad, the younger nephew, is more rugged, more washed and weathered, but willing to learn from the past. Tad is the nephew of Thaddeus, sharing the same namesake and DNA, but interpreted for a new generation of sportswear. Tad is more casual, suggesting a more worn-in, easy look. The fit is slightly slimmer and trimmer. Tad fits the mind and body of a man who wants to put his own stamp on the traditions he has inherited. For menswear that is a tad dressy and a tad disheveled, shop online at ThaddeusandTad.com. So let's back up a little bit and just talk about how you got into the business of being a pilot in, in your career. I remember when I was six years old, we were li- we lived near Ellington Air Force Base. I remember going outside and looking up and seeing the Hueys fly in, and they made the wop up 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 sound, and I thought that was totally cool. Anything that span around, so you know, back this would be back in the '60s and '70s. And in Pasadena, it was not uncommon to see a helicopter land at a McDonald's or land at a bank or someplace just in an open field, you know, and go in. I remember every time I'd see one of those, I would be fascinated by it. And I said, oh, my gosh, I want to. And the fact that they could lift straight off and come straight down. And I just fascinated me. So I knew that I wanted to I wanted to fly them. And I didn't. I remember telling my folks that and they, oh, sure, that's fine. Yeah, you, it's, it's a nice dream, but let's get back to reality type <laughs> thing. I sure. Said, well, I got to make this a reality, you know. And so I remember starting flight school, I guess, back in 1985 with airplanes. So I went and got a private and just kind of as a hobby thing. But then I realized, what do I want to do? I need to go to college, I need an education. So if I didn't do that, I wanted to be an attorney. And I, I think aviation's pull was greater. Why an attorney? What was driving you on that? On that? I thought it was cool how they, how they litigated in courtrooms. I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting and I thought I could do that. Yeah. Because I could talk to people and I can make things make sense sometimes. And I just thought it would be kind of a cool job. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask is when I was in school and sometimes was able to play golf in the afternoon, like when most people are working at mm-hmm. two in the afternoon and I'd see some middle-aged guy, you know, dark tan. And I would always ask him, what do you do? And it was usually an attorney or a salesman. So mm-hmm. That's why I ask. I think attorneys one and the same. It's probably a very high paid salesman, but that's what they're selling, right? No, that's, that's cool. Yeah, exactly. Scott, I, I was just thinking this would be. This I, would I be just fun. wonder if it was the same mindset. I like to, uh, 
I like the rock star lifestyle, you know, where you can go out and you can make your money and have time to play golf and do it in the middle of the day when everybody sure. else is out. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get as a ton of money if you're working 80 hours a week or whatever, you know? Exactly. And yeah. there's people out there that make good money, but holy yeah. Toledo, they just work right. 140 hours a week. They have no time for yeah. family or friends. And yeah, the, the, the trick is finding that sweet spot, time and money. Finding that sweet spot. Yeah. And I always wanted to do something that I, that I love doing. I thought, you know, if you can get paid to do something you love, are you really working? I don't think so. I used to tell people who would ask me questions. I said, well, one of the reasons I do this is to keep from having to get a real job. I get to fly. I get paid for it. And I love it. You know, Yeah. it was a lot of fun. I think uh, for me, probably the air medical was the, was the most rewarding. Why is that? Since I had been a patient in need on board a helicopter and somebody came to rescue me, I thought, well, what greater way could I do it than to lend my service to somebody else? That makes sense. So it came after. It came after the fact. Yes. So the obvious question is. How long did it take you to say, okay, I'm ready to go back on the helicopter again after you were rescued? I stayed down about a month okay. and got back together. But I made up my mind. I said, I am going to go back out there in that ocean one more time. I guess it's the same thing as if you get pitched off a horse, you have to get back in the saddle again. Mm-hmm. Although, so you'll be trapped. So I'm going to make another flight back out there. And so I made a couple more flights out there on beautiful sunny days. There was no weather at all. You could see all the way to... <laughs> You know, the equator, if you could, you know, and that type of thing. And oddly enough, one of those flights, one of taking two guys out there happened to be two of the guys that we were going out there to pick up that night to mm. bring back in. So we had quite a conversation all the way out there. Golly. But I made those flights awesome. successfully and I said, okay, now I can, I can move on to something else. Wow. So it just a matter of just, but you had already made up in your mind that you're going to get back in the saddle. And once you did it. It yes, was, it was a dead I said, deal. I've got to said, man, I just got started flying here. I was kind of a late bloomer. I didn't start flying until I was, in, I think, 40. Okay. And so I said, I, I want to continue to do this. This can't be my last rodeo. Yeah. And so I decided, but I decided I want to do it. I had enough of offshore at this point. Yeah. I said, now nah, I think let's, let's go fly some medical. So I did that and loved it. Yeah. Yeah. What was that feeling like the first time you flew a helicopter? Did, did you go back to your childhood and think about that at all or? I'll tell you, the first time I've, I always thought since I loved it so much, it would be an easy, it'd be an easy thing to accomplish. The first time I took the controls of a helicopter, it was just, it was like this. You couldn't, I couldn't hold it over the ground. It was wobbly. And after a couple of flights, I asked myself, well, you really want to do this? I said, are you sure you want to fly helicopters? It's pretty, it's tough. It's, I was not a natural at it. I had to work hard to do it. And you flew a plane, right? You said you started I, flying, flying a plane. So how are they, well, obviously they're two totally different things. Uh, the way they fly, but as a pilot, how are they different? The airplane's very stable. Uh, you can trim it out and take, take your hands off of it. It will fly itself. A helicopter, you have to fly it the whole time. Mm. you got so many forces working against you that you can't just turn loose of it because it'll get away from you. Mm-hmm. So it requires you to stay on the controls. Now, some of these more sophisticated copters have uh, autopilots, flight directors, and things like that. But um, if you're just flying like a Bell 206 or something, now you're flying it. Yeah. And I guess I kind of like the idea that, well, I can, I've gotten good enough now. I can make this thing work for me instead of, in other words, I'm flying the helicopter instead of it flying me, mm. which was the case, you know, when you start up to 500 hours, you realize, you know, nothing Yeah. from 500 to a thousand, you begin to say, okay, I'm learning something. And then once you get several thousand hours under your belt, you remember that, okay, I've, I think I'm finally getting a handle on this thing, but it's one of those things that you can never take it for granted. Because just when you think you get too comfortable, something's going to happen. It's going to scare the bejeez out of you. Yeah. Did you 
fly it by yourself? I mean, did you fly the helicopters by yourself or is there always a co-pilot? No, most of the time it was single pilot. Mm. Uh, it, as such, it was with this company I was flying for. We just happened to, night by contract, if we went out, they wanted two pilots on board. Yeah. But if I've had trips out to the same place during the day, it was just me. Yeah. And how, I mean, that would just scare the crap out of me, to be honest with you. I mean, how did you handle that I, or in, in the early days? Very apprehensive. I wanted to make sure I had my weight and balance correct. I wanted to make sure I knew all my limitations, my performance charts. Were we legal? Were we safe? I mean, all these things going over. And then the, then the client comes out and you load them up. Okay, I'm going to hit the starter button. We're ready to go. It's, the time to find out you're not in shape is not after you get into the ring. You want to do that ahead of time. And so I was going to do a list in my mind. Of course, we had checklists in the aircraft and I used them religiously, you know, item by item by item to make sure you didn't lose anything. Mm. So you crank it up, get ready to go, call the tower, get a clearance pick it up off the ground. You say, okay, we're in games on there. Yeah. Everything that no, no time to go back. So we fly and very, very cautious. I kept thinking, am I getting everything right? Did I miss anything? I want to make sure, we, you know, how's my approach going to be? How's my landing going to be and stuff like that. And, and over time, the, the more you get multiple landings and takeoffs under your belts then you get comfortable with it. Yeah. I never got to the point where I fell asleep at the wheel, but there was times that I was very, very comfortable and relaxed flying. Yeah. Did you have any other near misses that kind of come to mind or stand out to you? Uh, sometimes at airports, like mm. these uncontrolled airports and stuff, not everybody uses the radio and practices proper etiquette. What do you mean an uncontrolled airport? Uh, like Houston Hobby, for example, they have mm. a control tower. You have to talk to the tower to take off and land or even operate in their airspace. A mm -hmm. uh, place like Laporte, let's say, there's no tower. So all you're doing is broadcast, broadcasting your positions to other pilots that may be um, flying around in the area, which are certain, there are certain procedures for helicopters and airplanes when you approach an airport about how you get into a, a pattern to land and things like that. Some of the weekend warriors that fly don't always do that. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I had a couple of times where we go to start to roll out, made my clearance, everything was good, and an airplane takes off right in front of me, so it's doing a quick stop. Mm. You just got to bring the helicopter back and then just sit it back down to the ground, which is one of the advantages, and then try it again. A couple of things like that. Let's see. Uh, coming off of a platform one time, I lost my turbine. And the turbine is? The turbine's the engine. Okay. I didn't completely lose it to where it shut down, but I lost I lost abilities and I, I overtempt the aircraft because it's just too much of a load and it shouldn't. As soon as I lifted off and started flying, bang, we went hot. Wow. What does that mean? You went hot? Burnt the engine. I mean, yeah. we overtempt it. Okay. Oh, over temperature. Okay. Yeah. We over the engine and, and I thought, oh my God. And yeah. I had like three or four guys on board. So wow. the only thing to do, I had two choices. I could either pop the floats and put it in the drink right there, or I could fly 20 minutes like that and land at Beaumont, which is what I did. And then we shut it down, call the mechanic and they got it back to. Do you recall that making that decision, that moment of truth, why you decided Beaumont and not to float it? Because I didn't. I didn't want to go down in the, uh, well, this, this, this was before the accident. Yes. I just didn't want to have, to, I thought it would be a lot easier mm -hmm. uh, by regulation. It says if you have, now if the engine was going to completely quit, we would have put it right down in the drink where we were. We'd have done that, but I was still flying. Mm. And after the initial losing the engine and everything going hot, I could bring the power settings down enough to keep it in the green. Okay. Did, did you get lower to the ground in case it completely I Quit. did. Yeah. I did. I okay. got a little bit lower than I normally think about 300 feet over the water. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, okay, two choices right here. You can 
pop the floats and land, which is going to be real, real challenging to get us. Or let's just the first point of intended landing, which was Beaumont. We were still flying. Let's just take it to the airport. As soon as I sat down, the aircraft was grounded. Yeah. At that point. But yeah. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, that's fine. Other than that, I don't remember a whole lot of. Yeah. So, so air medical was your most rewarding and favorite you yes and that's transporting people that are hurt that is correct okay and then news gathering what what is that like flying for sky 13 oh okay i was sky 13 for a year and a half yeah we'd go out and gather the news up and do they do the reporters would do the on air reporting while flying and traffic in the morning and stuff like that yeah what's that job like <sighs> it was interesting um it, the the fun thing I think the most fun I had with that was flying with the uh, with Mike Guerrero. He was the guy that did. He was the channel. He was the traffic reporter in the morning, going out early in the morning and doing traffic reports. Sure, I remember it was seven forty, wasn't he? Uh, I think so. He yeah, was on thirteen seven forty. So yeah. we would go out and do that. that. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, the coolest thing that I ever did on that was when the space shuttle finally made its final flight through here and landed at Ellington Air Force Base at one stop. We were the ones that got the bid on that to go up and cover that. So that was that was pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I had, we, had, we had fun with that. Yeah. Tell us about that experience. It was one where I, the FAA, of course, had TFRs all over the place, and you had to call, go through a lot of channels. T in order TFRs to, are? I'm sorry, temporary flight restrictions. Okay. That basically keeps uh, the airspace protected and keeps everybody else out for a given purpose. Like, you'll have them when the president comes in. You'll have them if you have wild. California's got them up there with the fires and everything. So, yeah. But anyway, we had that. So you have to go through channels and get your clearances and um, whatnot. And But that was fun. We met them right as they were coming in right north of Intercontinental Airport. And then we followed them all the way down, and they made a flyby through Hobby, then came back around and landed at Ellington. Wow. And Mike was doing on-air reports as we were doing this. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, very cool. That was fun. Then you did search and rescue missions. Did some of that. We did uh, out in uh, eastern New Mexico. It was air medical, but sometimes we'd actually have to go out and land on the side of a mountain and pull. Somebody might have had a heart attack or something, a hunter that was out there. Okay. And so we'd have to go out there. And I remember one time in particular, this was funny. We went out there and there was no landing zone out there. So I had to land a mile over here, drop the medical crew off who went out there with hatchets and started chopping trees down. Wow. Just to kind of clear, clear the area so we could land. And they knew the perimeters of the helicopter, what from tip to tail, what it would take to land securely without striking anything. So they did that and they called me and said, okay, we're ready. So we took off. I, I couldn't see them. You know, we'd fly by and said, oh, there they are down there. So we had to make another pass. We did this four or five times. And one of the, uh, the nurses, it was absolutely a joy to fly with, was out there with toilet paper attached to a string running back and forth across the LG just to try to flag the just to flag our attention. And finally, with that effort, and he had some, he was using his phone as a reflector. We saw the LZ and we were able to land and pick this guy up and uh, get him. I think we took him to El Paso, I believe. Mm, but it was it, situations like that. If we hadn't got there, we wouldn't have made it. How long did it take him to chop down those trees? They did. They had, uh, they had the Artesia Fire Department helping them as well. So there was like four guys doing it. And they're little trees are just little, like yeah. this, not great big trees in diameter, just small. Still. I, I, they were out there. I, I, we were flying by. Look, and I had a, another medic up front with me. It was it was funny, but these guys were working hard <laughs> and running around. And I said, "Whoop! There's the LZ. We gotta make another." <clears throat> so 
excuse me. It's really not funny because this guy needed to be gotten right now and yeah. taken in. But we, well, we laughed about it later. Obviously, yeah. I would say, come on, Stephen, get your head. Let's get this thing down so we would see it. And then we finally, about the, I think the fourth pass by, we, we landed and they loaded him up and yeah, we took off and got him in. Yeah. Awesome. Great but story. It's you have stories like you have things that stick out. There's a couple more, but that uh, of people that you rescued that go doc- ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I, there yeah. was one time and uh, we picked somebody up in Bowie. We're taking them to Wichita Falls. It was a young girl, 16 years old, had been in a bad car accident. Doctors at the little hospital there said she's not going to make it. She's got head trauma. She's she's going to be a vegetable if she even lives. And I said, oh, I don't, I'm not buying that. I said, I, I know I know a savior that's greater than any incident that we could possibly have. And so we loaded this young lady up and I was praying all the way back in. I said, Lord Jesus, I said, this is a job for you. All I can do is my part. All you got to do is say the word just like that. She'll rise up. So we prayed. And of course, at the hospital, her family was having a prayer vigil for her too. So we landed and... Um, they got her inside and I really didn't hear about it. I just know she got to the higher level of care. It was probably about three months later. Um, I didn't happen to be on duty at that point, but her and her grandmother came over there to thank the flight crew. This girl was completely restored to a hundred percent. No limitations mentally, physically whatsoever. She was just completely restored. Yeah. And I said, ha ha, <laughs> we it knew worked. it. Yeah. We put the prayers together with that faith, you know, and it just, sure. uh, the Lord did what he always does. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's a great story. And so you remember remember a few stories like that. I wished I would have been there because I would have liked to have seen her. But bottom line is she was well and healthy and back to her family. Yeah. How did your life change before and after your life-saving experience? I um, Beforehand, I had gotten into this. Uh, I was in a, in a marriage at the time that was wasn't going anywhere. It needed to end. And I guess I'd become quite indifferent about things. I was just kind of going through the motions of life. There wasn't a whole lot of excitement. The greatest thing I had was flying. I mean, I love that every time I did it, but other than that, it's you know, life is just kind of bland. So I was just kind of had that bleh, type of an attitude. Well, after that, I realized what had been given to me back, what had been saved. And I said, there, there's no time in life to have an attitude like that. Get happy about it, Stephen. You've been blessed in so many ways. Don't go around with a long face. And so it it changed my attitude. I started seeing things differently, the way I would respond to things. Little things weren't so frustrating anymore. You were just really glad that the Lord had given your life back to you or saved your life, actually. Yeah, yeah. It was... uh, Sometimes it it takes a shakeup. It does take a shakeup sometimes. And I said, thank you. That's a swift kick in the pants for sure, you know, or a good... Big time. Good shaking up just to kind of say, hey, what are you... What are you so sore about? Look what look what you have. Look what I've given you. Yeah. Well, the, I kept flying. The relationship finally did end as it should have, and I went on with my li- my life. And uh, my life today is the greatest year of my life. Yeah. I married the woman of my dreams. I love her to death, and she's a she's a sweetheart. There's a story behind that, but I don't want to as far as how we met and whatnot. But anyway, she she's a lovely lady. We got time, man. This is your podcast. <laughs> um, okay. Um, oddly enough, back in 79, she was my girlfriend in high school for a year and a half. Oh, cool. And we dated, and then our paths took us separate ways for probably about 37 years. Yeah. And I remember this last March, I was at, again, another dead relationship. It seems to follow me around. I don't know what they're... Maybe I'm creating the problem. I don't know. I think we've all been through it. Uh, yeah, I, I hope I'm not the only guy out there that's had a problem. But, but anyway, she sent me a friend request. And I didn't have anything going at the time. We needed to end that relationship. So we 
joined up as friends again and just started talking on a casual basis. Neither one of us knew what was to befall us at this point. So um, that relationship I was in eventually failed. And I guess about a week after she and we were not married and we were just there. And about a week after we decided we we're going to end the relationship, um, I asked Barbara out for dinner. So we went out and actually had dinner together. And that's when we realized there's still a relationship and a lot of love was still in place. And we went from there and married this past June. So it worked out well. Yeah. The spark was still there. The spark was still there. Absolutely. Good for you. Congratulations. Thank to both you. Of you. It's, yeah. uh, it's a, it's a good year. There's a lot to be thankful for. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Well, Stephen, that is an amazing story and, and a lot of stories embedded. And I really appreciate you taking time to share. And when we chatted on the phone a bit before we did this podcast, um, I kind of got the feeling that, uh, in fact, I, you said something along the lines of you, you haven't told the story in a while. It, and does it not come up often or is it something you don't like to talk about much or what? Um. No, I, as a matter of fact, when right after it happened, I went around to several churches. I would get invited to go speak to their congregations about this. And I would, I did that for a, a good while afterwards. And I guess after a while, it just kind of died off. And, but I talk about it. Uh, occasionally it'll come up and somebody will know about it. Or as a family member will say, God, I can't remember in 2006. And say, oh, I remember it well. Yeah. I, uh, I had a really hard time watching the movie, The Guardian for a long time. I just couldn't do it mm. um, without it. it Without it getting to you, and Scott, honestly, had this this trauma. There was there was PTSD afterwards. I remember the first year afterwards, waking up at night screaming, thinking you're drowning. Yeah, you know. So there's there was a, a healing process, I think, emotionally and psychologically that had to happen. How did you deal with that? I prayed. I asked the Lord Jesus to restore me. I would read the scriptures and I believed Him, mm. and that's what He did. Yeah. He walked me right through Him. No meds. No didn't doctors, take any meds. I, I try to avoid that at all costs if I if I can. Sure. I just, I said, he's a great physician. He can do better than, and there's no wrong with talking to people. I mean, it's great to have people to talk to and help you through struggles and stuff like that. But I just said, I'm going to look to you. You, yeah. you saved me from a greater task than it would be to heal the emotional and psychological issues. I believe you can do it. And he did. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and, and sharing your story. It's inspirational and, um, Personally speaking, I, I think you're a great speaker. It's, and, and as many times as you could share it, I think it's a, a story that can touch a lot of people's lives very positive, in a very positive way. I hope that was the case. That's the reason I did it, is just to help somebody in some way. Yeah, we'll sure do our part to get it out. And uh, thank you again. I always like to end my podcast with this sort of um, um, uh, legacy type question, is what I like to call it. Uh, in 100 years, Say somebody in your extended family is is listening to this audio in some form. What do you want them to remember about you? What do you want them to take away from from you or from this podcast? There's a lot of people out there that have a lot of challenges every day, Scott, and sometimes they don't have the answers. What I would want them to know from me is I was a guy that believed the Lord Jesus Christ. I read the scriptures. His spirit's alive inside of me. And I'm just, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm just an average guy. If he can do anything for me, he can do it for anybody else. He is who he says he is. He rose from the dead. Indeed, he's alive. He will save. He will heal. He will deliver. It's the best friend you can have because it's, it's something that lives in your heart and in your soul every single day. And if anybody would take anything away, the experience, yeah, we survived it, but I can't take credit for that. I just want them to know that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and I'm a guy that believed him. 
Well said. Stephen, thank you very much for being on your cron. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. I've enjoyed it. 